This episode is sponsored by Realtor.com, who wants you to take advantage of your free profile on Realtor.com. By claiming and completing your free profile, adding a photo, and all of the information that puts you head and shoulders above the competition, you're on your way to receiving free leads, helping search engines find you, and staying top of mind with past clients. To learn more about claiming your free profile, go to realtor.com forward slash profile. Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Real View Podcast. I am your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me today is our special guest, Jessica Stone. She is a Washington-based news anchor and correspondent who covers the intersection of politics and business around the world. She has quite the extensive career and resume and has done some pretty cool things. And she is going to bring to us today um, a little bit more about herself, her perspective, and how realtors fit into this global world, economy, business, political life that we are all living in. So Jessica, welcome onto the show. I'm so happy to have you. It's good to be here. Before we get started on today's show, I have to ask our signature question that I ask all of the guests who join me on the Real View podcast. I would like to know what is the best view that you've ever seen? Well, I'm sorry to say it's not inside the United States. Um, <laughs> it's a cross between Capri and the Hindu Kush Mountains in Afghanistan. Oh, love that. Very cool. And I figured you would have a really cool answer to this because your travels, you know, you've been all over the place. So, no, I love, love hearing that. I want to hear more about you, uh, what you do, how you got started as a journalist. Is this always something you knew that you wanted to do? Um, share with us a little bit about your career story and background. So I wanted to be a Broadway actress until 16 when I was fortunate enough to get enough opportunities to do some basic stage work at my high school. And I realized I don't want to be someone else in front of people. I want to be me in front of people. And I happened to have had a very great composition teacher in high school who really drove me to think more about politics and economics and current events. And those two things kind of just came together and resulted in me, you know, trying out the broadcast journalism thing, and it took off. And I've been doing it since college, actually in college, um, radio, TV, more recently doing more writing for the web as well. And my turn internationally kind of came out of necessity. I came to DC in 2007 with nothing and just started knocking on doors and looked for freelance work, did a bunch of local stuff, did some national stuff. And then the war in Afghanistan, we had already been at war, obviously, since 9-11, but the 2009 was the evaluation by the Obama administration of what was going on. Should we keep troops? Should we escalate troops? And I thought it would be a great time to send myself to Afghanistan. And that began the turn to more international stories. But I studied in France and loved being in France and loved the international context back in college. 
So it was sort of like a return in some ways to just being more globally aware. That's so cool. And I love all of your travels and you've covered, I mean, some major important events that has happened in U.S. history. And you mentioned covering the war in Afghanistan. You covered the White House in in 2016 in the midst of of the election there. What was it like being involved in these crazy times that, that we went through and you were right thrown into the heart of it all? What was that like and what was your experience with that? Covering the Trump White House was, I guess I'm talking about post-election, uh, but covering the Trump White House was wild, especially for an international broadcaster. I worked for um, Chinese media at the time, and they just had a very open-door policy. They didn't really know yet when, at the very beginning days, like what part of the White House should be off-limits, what should be on-limits, where the journalists should go. And so there's this just really this organic, very open posture that they had. And of course, that resulted in all of the leaks. Everybody talked to the media. A lot of people talked out of turn to the media. But it was great to be on the receiving end of that information. And it began a really crazy uh, because every day you were watching your tweets and waiting to see what was going to drive the news cycle. Exhausting. A lot of the reporters uh, that were on that beat have <laughs> since moved on to other little bit quieter beats or stayed on because the Biden administration functions very differently. So it was pretty crazy. And I know one of the things you've done in your career, and you mentioned a little bit, is just the traveling and being around different cultures and and spending time different places. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like and and what you've learned, how us as Americans can deal with different cultures. And you kind of have a different side of things. You were in the foreign country, but we deal with so many people moving into our communities as realtors that we are dealing with those people that are coming in from different countries and they're in a foreign country. So you, you have a unique perspective that I'm interested to hear kind of from your side of things. It's become a real passion point. So I would say my kind of interest in cross-cultural stuff began in probably just growing up in a bi-religious household. And both my parents share the same faith now, but they grew up in very different faith backgrounds. They brought us up all over the country. So there was a lot of adjusting for culture and region and sometimes language growing up. And that resulted in a real fascination with France and studying in France. And then fast forward to my experience with the, the Chinese media, uh, which I hadn't had a background in. So it was a lot of learning. And I actually went to China a few times, but I spent the majority of my time working here in DC, starting a bureau with them. And just the huge differences between Chinese and American culture, something I'm really passionate about crossing that divide. And that's why I wrote a book called Crossing the Divide that is over there, which is just a number of stories from my international reporting career from Afghanistan to Haiti, to France, to China, to Vietnam, encouraging people to learn through those stories what lessons they can glean and giving them a lesson to learn around around cross-cultural communication, management, and interaction. And I just think it's so, so important. And I'm grateful to be able to share this message with you all because you are in the community every day as realtors and you are constantly coming across different aspects of communication that are really important. You know, you're trying to help people find homes, find places to do their, to open their businesses, and they all have different ways of communicating that. And you have to be able to figure out, okay, how do I respond? Well, when you have that amongst Americans, that's enough complexity, but then layer over top people that have a refugee background or people who are first generation from their homes. They were born in this country for the first time and their parents, you know, raise them with a different language and a different set of values. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. And 
I really believe it's fundamental to the success of every American going forward, whether you're in high school or college or out in the workforce already. Yeah, no, it really is so important. And I know here in Ohio, you know, we are seeing that influx, you know, of new Americans coming here from different countries who have different cultural backgrounds, who have, you know, language barriers. And we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we work with these clients? How do we get them into homes? You know, how do we create that first step of the American dream for them? What is your advice from your perspective for realtors in working with diverse cultures? How can we do it in the best way to make these clients clients for life? Well, number one, listen. Listen not only to what they say, but how they say it. There are a lot of cultures in the East who will never actually say yes or no. They will not say that in the absence, especially no. They will not say no. And so when they're not saying yes, that is a no. And you need to read between the lines. So there's this real continuum of communication from direct to indirect. In the West, we tend to be more direct. In the East, we tend to be more indirect. Every country is on that continuum. That's a really important skill, you know, and before reacting, retracting, observing, thinking, and then acting, which is the acronym ROTA. I highly recommend that. I also really recommend understanding that cultural iceberg where the visible things are things that you can readily know about a person when you when you get that first inquiry, but then building the relationship, talking to them about the businesses in their family, how they spend money, how they treat authority. You know, you can get at that by just learning their family story. I think that's really critical cross-culturally because respect for authority and interaction, you know, some of them are going to come to you and think of you as the authority and that will shape how they communicate with you and how much deference you get. So you'll have to reciprocate the deference sometimes. And I'm sure you're already calibrating for that. You know, some people are more casual. They think of you as a friend. Some people are really formal, but that will also cross paths with some of the cultures that you deal with. And as you said, for some people, this is the first American dream. You know, they don't have a lot of information or background in how the financing side of real estate works or how to look for school districts. And I know you're not supposed to talk about the strength of the schools, but there's going to be priorities culturally, proximity to restaurants, proximity to the the cultural hub of their community, if there is one in the location that you're showing them homes in. So I think those are all things that are kind of part of the equation, but I really think it all starts with listening and know that values are really different from one end to the spectrum to the other. For example, as a journalist, I believe in truth. I believe truth is an object really that I can find, that I can locate. It doesn't mean we all look at it the same way. And so to the extent that you and I might have differences over what is true, we can have that conversation, but we both in the West often believe that there is an objective of truth. Well, in the East, it's just not that way. Truth is dictated largely by those in authority. And so you'll find that that shapes, too, your interactions with people cross-culturally. And when I say the East, we're not just talking the Far East, China, and Vietnam, but it could it could come as close as the Middle East, where you'll see some differences about, about what truth is and, and how you find it and how you define it. So for me, that's been a real eye-opener. I mean, I spent eight years working in that context with a very multicultural context, not only Chinese, but Japanese, Korean, Brazilian, Portuguese-speaking Americans, French-speaking Americans, and French-speaking Brits, and Haitians, and all kinds of different people, you really begin to, to look for what you have in common. And sometimes all you have in common is a goal. And that's something you can focus on as well. You have a goal to serve the person or the family that you're working with to the utmost and find them what they're looking for. And I do think it's going to take more patience because the pace of communication 
is longer, not only with the language barrier, but with the differences that the other person is navigating, whether they're financial, cultural. I'm a get things done quick kind of person. And many of you are too, because you're, that's how you run a business. It's a game of, it's a long game of patience and building relationships and reading between the lines and talking to other people in your network that have a similar cultural background as well. Yeah, no, I think all those are so important. And I know in Ohio, at least, I think our biggest influx of foreign homebuyers and new clients we see coming into the state is actually Japanese. So we have we do have a lot of the Japanese population coming over here that are putting those roots down and starting, you know, new lives here. And I like that you mentioned, you know, the time, because I think that's one of the things that exists, too, is that Americans were so in a rush all the time. And I feel like we're like, and and you could probably attest to this better than I can, but in America, we're so rushed. We're so like constantly on the go. And if you don't respond to an email in like five minutes, you know, you're, you're like falling behind. But that's not the case, you know, when it sounds like from what you're saying, when you deal with clients that come from elsewhere is that they move at such a different pace than us. I mean, that's just another one of those differences, right? Yeah. And I think that's more common in Latin cultures. But the thing that's interesting about Japanese is they have a really interesting decision-making mechanism corporately that I think is worth sharing, which is they combined hierarchical decision-making with corporate decision-making. So they have something, and I can't remember the name right now, but it's almost like if you were to look at like a bubble and then push it up, a bubble, then push it up. And what that results in is they seek buy-in from everybody and then they push it up a level, then buy in from everybody, then they push it up a level. So there's less of a sense of a, of a dictation, which is what you would see in a Chinese um, decision-making setup. And so the idea is that they're getting buy-in from everybody so that the whole company, or maybe in this case, the whole business that you're working with or the whole family has buy-in. Now, I can't attest to whether everyone runs their families like that um, with a Japanese background, but I think it's worth noting that consensus is huge. I mean, anywhere Confucius or Confucianism has been spread primarily in the Southeast and the East of Asia is a place that seeks, you know, these are people who seek harmony. They don't like open confrontation. They're not going to, that's why they need you to do the negotiation. They may not be comfortable with going back and forth and they may need in terms of negotiating a deal and they might want more support. I mean, that's obviously person and people specific, but yeah, I was really fascinated to read the Japanese mechanism because Having been under Chinese decision-making for so long, I was struck by the fact that there wasn't always buy-in, but that there was still a desire for harmony, whereas the Japanese had this mechanism to create both. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't work perfectly all the time, but it's an interesting difference. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, and I love, too, what you mentioned about just the truth and the importance of of reporting that in the work that, you know, you do as a journalist. Um, there's been so much going on with just, you know, how in America we're reporting, you know, on things in the news and, and how we're being fair and transparent. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, Visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. Home sellers can be sued by buyers, even if they did nothing wrong. 
When a seller gets sued, so does their agent and broker. And that's just not fair. Home sale lawsuits don't happen on every transaction, but when they do, they can be devastating. Seller's Shield is so proactive, we resolve 94% of our clients' disputes before they become a formal suit, keeping everyone out of the courtroom. Protect yourself with Seller's Shield and get the peace of mind you deserve. How do you think we best ensure that journalism stays strong and stays fair and stays transparent? That's one of those impossible to put yeah. a price tag on questions. Like, um, if I we'll had that just, answer, yeah, I'd be wealthy beyond our measure. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's important, and here's why. There are probably fewer and fewer people going into journalism than ever before, at least, especially on the broadcast side. It's poorly paid, and people don't want to work the hours that it takes anymore. And so there is a revolution going on with that, and I think the younger generations are really pushing for more work-life balance. They are going to take more time. I mean, I already see in my different workplaces now that the employees, not the bosses that say, hey, you know, you're emailing on vacation. That sets a tone that everybody should be checking email on vacation. We don't want that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, but here's why journalism and the search for truth is so fundamental to our democracy. Our democracy is a democratic republic, right? It's not just a wild sort of open everybody, one person, one vote, everybody gets to vote. But we also, we do have that, but we have a democratic republic. So we have representative democracy. And that's what keeps a little bit more order to our system than traditional Greece. Journalism is in the constitution. It's in the first amendment. You could only argue that one other profession, maybe law is in the constitution. And to the extent that the fourth estate, right, the, the nickname for the media is failing to hold the powerful accountable, then we're going to have much more chaos. We're going to have rightfully more protests, more search for accountability when we are falling down on the job. And I think social media has just upended journalism. It has made it much more reactionary, much more about getting the headline and not the facts, because it is a profit-motivated business now. Um, it's not in every context. I mean, there is government funding for some media projects, certainly, and nonprofit funding as well. There isn't this recognition that we all sit down and read the same newspaper or watch the same program. A lot of viewers are looking for their opinion to be reinforced as opposed to finding a balanced perspective on what's going on in the world. I don't know how we can fix all of that, but I do know we need to try because good journalism and the search for truth and, the, and keeping the powerful accountable is really really critical. When people feel like that that hasn't been done, you see riots, you see protests, and you see disorder. So I am certainly hopeful as I look around the landscape that we'll continue to, to try better funding mechanisms in journalism, and people are trying a lot of different things. And so I think you're seeing a lot of different opportunities to not only be a consumer of those things, but to try different things. We no longer think of a journalist as someone who has a journalism education. There are downsides to that. There's not always fact-checking. There's not always two sources on every story. But there's also this explosion of people who feel like, hey, I took a video of something that's really important and nobody else has this picture. I should share it. I certainly don't have all the answers. I just think the search for the answers is still important. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, the fact that we have journalists out there like you who believe in this and, you know, want to keep the profession intact is really important. I want to switch gears a little bit to the global economy and, and real estate. 
talk a little bit about from what you're seeing on the global global economy, maybe what are some of the biggest issues that are going to impact us, you know, in the next few years, I know maybe some of the obvious things that are all we're all hearing about on a day to day basis. But from your perspective, what does that global economy look like? What are some of the issues and factors that you're seeing that may be important to the real estate industry? So we're taping right now in mid-April. We've just come off the International Monetary Fund World Bank meetings where we get these global economic forecasts from these bodies of finance ministers that come into D.C. from all around the world and create a lot of traffic, I might add, (laughs) Um, a lot of blocked streets for the tourists that are coming in, which is a beautiful time of year. The cherry blossoms are out and then the pollen is out. If you're allergic, it's probably not the best time to be here, but unless you're very medicated up. But that said, they gave us some, you know, they give forecasts about the economy. And I believe that they have forecast the global economy will grow at less than 3%. So about 2.8%, which is which is pretty slow, right? But it's actually slower than the past year, which was 3.4%. And, you know, there were a lot of conversations, which I know you're having um, in all of your real estate meetings about inflation, about interest rates continuing to climb. I follow the Federal Reserve meetings pretty closely as well. There does not seem to be an indication that they are going to start cutting rates anytime soon. The best that lenders can hope for is that they will not raise them. But I think there's probably one more quarter point to half point interest rate coming down the pike. There's a lot less uniformity and agreement about, you know, is the economy doing well? Is the economy doing poorly? Because in part, I think there's there hasn't been as rocky of a road as some of these economic forecasters have thought there would be. But, you know, we still have a lot of people living off credit and a lot of the government safety programs that were designed to sort of get people through the pandemic they're fading away. And of course, then there's the regional banking crisis that's happening in this country. So that's obviously a regulatory concern for folks here in Washington. And actually around the world, people are watching these banks like Silicon Valley Bank funded a lot of technology companies around the world. So the collapse of that bank had international significance, had given seed funding to places like Snapchat and Spotify. So these are companies that are pretty well used around the world. So I think continuing to watch the inflation correlation with interest rate picture is is really critical. Not that you need me to tell you that. I know you're doing that already. Uh, But then the other thing, of course, that I'm watching is the impact of the Chinese economy reopening on global growth. I think they're forecasting 5% for China, which is, I remember the days of 10% growth, but that's actually pretty good coming out of the pandemic. You know, they completely shut down so many things and and so many major hubs of manufacturing. We're still seeing that ripple effect through the supply chain and through the cost of goods. In addition to China and by extension, Taiwan, because there's this ongoing conversation and there's a lot of hawks, which is uh, the term we use in foreign policy circles for people that are really concerned about something think that are China hawks or somebody that would say, yes, they're going to invade Taiwan tomorrow, whether or not we really believe that to be true. They're, they're much more cautious about foreign policy. We're watching that because, of course, Taiwan is a major manufacturer of semiconductors. The Taiwan Strait has a huge portion of the global economic product going through it. That has the potential, if there's even a hint of escalation in that area, you know, affecting trade routes, affecting shipping, for example. We just had those Chinese military drills around Taiwan in reaction to the House Speaker McCarthy's meeting with Taiwan's president on American soil, which was not quite at the extent of when it happened on Taiwanese soil when former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to meet with Tsai Ing-wen. You know, that's something huge to watch. And I don't think most Americans are thinking every day about how many things that they use every day in their microwave and their television and their iPhone. 
um, would be impacted by conflict in and around Taiwan. Yeah, no, that that was great that you brought that up because this was the first time, you know, I've been hearing of this. So I know that it'll be new to some of our listeners too, and definitely something to flag there that I will keep my eyes in the, in the mix about to hear more coming out about this situation. Definitely something to watch. And then we have the ongoing, you know, war with Ukraine too, and just the continual fallout from that and, and watching that yeah, play out. Yeah, that's the out. other I, thing I was going to bring up, yeah. Allison, is that's impacting food and energy hugely around the world. It's not just egg prices. Our fuel prices are affected by that and grains. And then all of the agricultural sales that we send around the world are impacted too, you know, whether it's soybeans to China or the grain imports. So we're not immune. It's in so many ways, the global economy has really brought up the standard of living for people around the world, including here in the United States. I mean, you know, think about before Walmart, you can have your opinion on the goods, the ills and, and benefits of Walmart, but cheaper goods have not been bad for every American. It's allowed people to have things and to clothe their children and to have the things they need to cook with and to have the things they need to entertain themselves with. But the downside is we're so interconnected that something one place can impact a lot of things. And it's led to, as many people in Ohio are all too familiar with, it's led to the outsourcing of a lot of American manufacturing, which is something I'm excited to see American policy now turning around. I know you've got a semiconductor plant coming into Ohio. So please invite me to come see it. Yes, I can't wait. <laughs> come visit. It's just like 20 minutes away from, from our oh, office. Oh, cool. So, yeah, well, come. you know, that's a great opportunity for realtors, I'm sure, because the kinds of jobs that that's going to create once it's con constructed, I mean, these are high-level science and technology jobs, really exciting for the community. Yeah, something we're excited about too. And just that makes this conversation, you know, just that much more relevant. We're going to have so many new people coming in here from all over the place, from new backgrounds that's really unprecedented for Ohio. So it's very important in time. Hey, don't sell yourself short. You're, you're <laughs> the hub of all of the, of the supply chains in many ways. I mean, I've done stories in Ohio about the train tracks always go through, all of the um, shipping, the, the truck shipping, and you've got Cleveland and you've got lots of, you've got a lot of things going on in Ohio. Yeah. Don't sell yourself short, realtors. <laughs> and it's in, <laughs> we're within like six hours of like almost half of the U.S. population, yeah. which is, which yeah, is pretty I, cool too. I hadn't stopped and thought of that until I looked at supply chain logistics, which again, sort of nerdy of me, but it's, <laughs> um, it's a great benefit to people in the economy of Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about your book. I know you mentioned that you just released your, your book and a little bit about what it's about. But tell us a little bit more about that, about how we can find more information about you and about your book. And I think we're going to do something a little special for yes, all our listeners. I want to have a contest. I want to see. So let me tell you first, before we talk about the contest. So this is a picture of me in the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan. This was a cell phone picture taken by my fixer at the time, Abbas Ali, younger days. And it really was kind of purple. It was, it's beautiful. The air is so clear. But I talk about the evolution of learning um, through my different life experiences. I know everybody watching probably has a great learning as well. It's really rewarding actually to write down all of these cultural lessons. So sometimes they're logistics, sometimes a lot of them are communication. They're familial um, within my own family. I am not dishonest about my many failures. I think it's really important to talk about all the places and the ways that you think at something so that you can improve the next time. So I'm hoping that readers will be at benefit from 
the lessons in here that show that I did something wrong so that you don't get to make the same mistake. I'd like to save you from them. Sometimes they're really painful. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> I, I love the vulnerability, you know, that you show in that too. And you're right, just sharing your experiences, which are so unique. You know, you've done so much, been all over the world, which I think is is so cool. And you just have a lot to, to offer, especially to our realtors. So I'm going to give you the full title of the book just because I, there are 20 lessons. So it's Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. And so I'm sure there's probably more than 20 lessons in my lifetime. These are the 20 I drew out. For me, it was kind of cathartic. It was sort of really important to look back at 20 years in journalism and think about the different things that had shaped how I communicate, how I could still communicate better still manage my own emotions and facial expressions <laughs> and interactions with people because people are the currency of so much of what I do. And I know so much of what you guys do too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're doing a contest. I know we teased that a minute ago, but we are going to do yes. something special for our podcast listeners. Why don't you uh, tell us how that's going to work? Okay. So thank you for partnering with me on this, Allison. I have three books to give away to the first three people that reach out to Allison uh, through her email address, and she'll give it to you with a story of how you had an intercultural client or situation as you were on the job. And the more vivid, the more vulnerable, the better. But I think she's going to take the first three people that email her with a hopefully a very interesting story that maybe we can have her share with listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll read, read some of them on air. I like that. Yeah, you can email podcast at ohiorealtors.org. Just one, one email line there. Send us your stories. We want to hear. I'm excited to hear them. I'm going to be forwarding them along to Jessica, and then we will get in touch with the lucky winners. So submit those right away in this podcast and go get on your email. Tell us about your experience with those culturally diverse clients. We want to know. <laughs> Yeah. And I would love to know too, what your questions are for different contexts that you have. I'm going to send you a signed copy of the book and I look forward to any interesting questions you have for me on these topics, because I am always learning and there is no shortage of lessons on this topic. No, there's definitely not. So um, yeah, we're excited. Um, have fun with it. We, we want to hear your stories. So make sure to send those over to us. Jessica, this was so great. Thank you so much for, for your time, for coming on the show, for sharing a little bit more about you and what you do and, and the work you've done. And we're excited about this contest. Thanks so much for yes. joining me. You bet. Pleasure to be here. And thanks to all of you guys for tuning in and listening. We will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time.